Please turn with me to the second chapter of Matthew. We are on the other side of Advent. We are on the other side of Christmas. We are on the other side of Epiphany. But uh, history didn't stop. Life didn't stop. For the wise men, for Mary, for Joseph, for Jesus, the Redeemer. So one last little look at Matthew chapter 2. And join me, we'll begin reading at verse 7. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose And took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are at the center of it. Help us by your spirit, because we want to know what you want us to know this morning. We need to know what you know that we need to know. And so come 
and help us, we ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Here is a thing about which uh, most of you won't be surprised, and yet it seems that when it happens to us, we are surprised. Uh, We are surprised. Here it is. Conflict will come for the Christian. Conflict will come for the Christian. Conflict will be an aspect, a frequent aspect of life for the Christian. Conflict comes from a couple of words, sort of simply, loosely translated It means to throw things together, or it means striking two things together. Now, typically when you think of conflict, you think of a parent and a child, or if you're a child, you think of a child and a parent, or a a sibling, or spousal conflict, a conflict between a husband and a wife. I, I know that's... A foreign concept to this group. Or conflict between neighbors. My grandmother once hosed down the laundry on her neighbor's drying lines because a couple of days before the neighbor had allowed her sprinkler to hose down the laundry that was on my grandmother's drying line. Conflict. Two things striking against each other. And then, of course, there are conflicts that are really much bigger deals, aren't there? International conflicts, nations rising against nation, people groups seeking one another's harm. It is a troubled and troublesome world, a world in which things are not the way they're supposed to be. But what I'm anxious for us to understand, and we don't have time, and I hope you understand this in the next 30 or so minutes, we don't have time to tease out all of the subtle interconnections that are reflected in sort of the big idea that I'm expressing to you here. We don't have time to tease all of that out and do all of the dissecting and parsing and everything that we would like to do. But what I want to suggest to you is that all of this conflict that we see and of which we are a part is in one sense merely symptomatic of a much deeper, far more pervasive and cosmos-wide conflict. And you get a little bit of a glimpse into the nature of that conflict from this passage. Here are these wise men who have come in search of a king of peace. They've come in search of the savior of the world. And they find themselves stepping into this deeper, wider, cosmic, cosmos-wide conflict. They find themselves, who, 
And, and they come, and let's be real clear about this, they come as those whose hearts are disposed to worship this newborn king. The text tells us that they do that. If you read the commentary, some of them will say they didn't know what they were doing. They were just offering obeisance. They were giving gifts. Folks, I want to suggest to you that given the degree of their knowledge, they knew exactly what they were doing. Did they know as much as you know? No. Let me just say this. If perfect knowledge is a precondition to true worship, nobody will worship. They didn't have perfect and complete knowledge, but they came to worship and they did worship this newborn king. And they step into this conflict and they find themselves confronted by Herod and by his narcissistic, self-exalting, self-preserving, power-preserving designs. And lest we think that these desires and designs are a trifle, it's pretty clear from the text that they are not. So let me extract three things from this. Three truths of which we need to be aware. Some of us are aware. If you're aware, then this is a reminder for you. If you're not aware, then I plead with you that you walk with me into these three things and take them seriously. Let's extract these three things. Number one, evil is real. Evil is real. Number two, evil will be crushed. And number three, and most important for you and for me at this particular juncture in our lives, and it's true at any juncture in your life, number three, In the midst of it, it is God who will provide. Evil is real. Evil will be crushed. And God will provide. Evil is real. Evil. Some of us in this room, some of us in these last few days, have had an up-close, personal face-to-face, encounter and dealing with real evil. We're biblical people here, and for those of you who may be new to Christ the King, you're maybe still trying to figure out who we are, let me suggest to you that as a point of departure for understanding who we are, we are biblical people. And what that means is that we accept the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments as our final authority in all matters of faith, what we are to believe, practice, how we are to live, and affection, meaning what we are to desire and what we are to love. We accept the 66 books of the Bible as the voice of God, the word of God that speaks into the cacophony, the confusion of voices that creates all kinds of noise and doubt and uncertainty. For us as Christians, this voice, these 66 books, speak into that confusion and send that confusion, that noise and that chaos and all of the doubt and uncertainty that accompany them to the periphery. This is the true voice, 
the word of God. It is the voice that speaks with clarity and with calm and with reassurance. And so we listen to this voice and we say, okay, this is the way it is. This is what is true. And it is this book, very, very soberly, and not with all of the information or detail that we would like, but it is this book, it is this voice which speaks to us and tells us that evil is real. It is not an abstraction. It finds specific expression in both personal and circumstantial form. Evil is real. Let me just give you a few passages and you can cross-reference yourself and illustrate this for yourself from other passages. Galatians 1.4, when Paul begins to talk about the, the grace that has redeemed these Galatians, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. This present evil age. Evil is the word that the apostle uses. You know Ephesians 6, I suspect. These verses that are, it seems, every Wednesday morning in the mind of one of our members who prays for me and who prays for the elders. Every Wednesday morning at the men's prayer breakfast, these verses are in his mind and he prays for me and for our elders in light of them. Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. 1 John 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, what's interesting is that as you read these passages and other passages, and as you reflect upon the whole of the Bible and its teaching, you begin to realize that there is an interwovenness to life, and there is an interwovenness to the reality of evil. Here's what I mean by that. There is an interwovenness to all of life and an interwovenness to the reality of evil. There is an interwovenness to all of life because there is a seen dimension and there is an unseen dimension. There is what is physical and material and there is what is spiritual. There is what you can apprehend, what you can measure, what you can weigh. And there is on the other side of this veil that which cannot be measured, which cannot be weighed. We live in a world that is comprised of what we can see and what we can't see. And what we cannot see is every 
bit as real as what we cannot see. And you neglect this to your own peril. You neglect this to your own peril. And here's the next thing to notice about this, and I've already suggested it. There is this interwovenness to all of reality. That interwovenness extends to the reality of evil. Remember what John said. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. For John, the word world is this present age with all of its institutions and its conspiracies and its powers and its agendas which stand over against the person and purpose of the God of heaven and earth. That's what world means to John. And there is an interwovenness, you see, between these institutions and conspiracies and powers and agendas and the unseen realm, what Paul refers to, you remember, in Ephesians 6, as the forces of evil, the forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And he says, we are in a struggle, a conflict, a battle, a warfare. This is the perspective of the Bible. And you see this perspective reflected all over the place. You see it going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And my, my favorite verse. And it's a favorite verse because it, it sets the trajectory for our understanding of so much. Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent after the temptation, after the sin of the man and the woman, after the fall, as God begins to impose a curse upon the world, God speaks to the serpent and says, there will be conflict between your seed, the seed of unbelief, the seed of the serpent, and her seed, the seed of belief, the line of faith. Conflict, enmity, hostility, warfare. And we catch glimpses of it across the Old Testament, don't we? We catch glimpses of it in in places like David's battle with Goliath. Folks, the contest between David and Goliath is not a contest between a 13-year-old super teenager and a big ogre. The conflict between David and Goliath has to be understood in light of this enmity and hostility and this warfare that encompasses the whole of the cosmos where those who stand allied against God and his perfect purposes are perpetually in conflict with one another. That's what you see in David and Goliath. And you see it in Elijah and Ahab, the 450 prophets of Baal, that conflict at Mount Carmel. Not just about a nasty king and a faith-filled prophet. It's a keyhole. It's a window into the cosmic conflict that has characterized all of human history. From the time of the fall to the time of Elijah and Ahab and down to the present. And you see it in 1 Kings 6, this wonderful story where Elisha, standing on the walls of the city, sees the plain outside the city walls of Dothan filled with the army 
of the Syrian king. And Elisha is absolutely nonplussed. But his servant, his servant is in a panic. And Elisha says, oh, Father, oh, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. And the serpent's, servant's eyes are opened and he sees the hills filled with chariots of fire. It really takes your breath away, doesn't it? It really kind of makes you want to look under the chairs to see what might be lurking there. There is considerably more to what is going on in this moment in history and in all of human history than we see. And all of this comes to expression. This conflict comes to a dramatic moment with Herod seeking to destroy the hope of the world. Herod, who began to reign in 37 B.C., Herod, who is not and who knows he is not the rightful heir to the throne of David. He was an Idumean, which means he was from Edom. And maybe that identification resonates with you a little. He's from one of those people groups, one of those regions, historically opposed to the Israelite nation. He's not even a Jew. He is an Edomite, an Idumean. He is the puppet of Rome. He's been placed upon this throne, and he is called the king of the Jews. But he's not a Jew, and he's not the rightful king. Herod, who built a series of fortresses along the eastern border of his kingdom. Why? Because there's no threat from the west. His allies are in the west. Rome is in the west. But to the east, to the east, that's the land of the Babylonians. That's the land of the Medo-Persians. That's the land now of the Parthians. The ones who at this particular moment are in a perpetual conflict with Rome the ones that Herod actually had to see defeated in order that he might be ensconced upon this throne. So what do you begin to learn about Herod? Well, when Magi from the east show up, all of Herod's capacities for fear, for uncertainty, for doubt, for narcissism, for self-preservation. All of his conspiratorial defenses just kick in and go into hyperdrive. And all of his capacities for scheming and for duplicity kick in as well. And somehow he's able to persuade the Magi that he too wants to come and worship this newborn king. But what is he really after, the text tells us. He is after the destruction of the king. He is after the destruction of the good, redeeming, saving purpose of God. This conflict comes to expression in this particular place. And who gets caught in the crossfire? 
Folks, this is a bloody, ugly, not-to-be-dismissed episode in the life of Jesus. Who gets caught in the crossfire here? We have two little boys in this congregation, Eli and Austin, both of them less than two years of age. I have a grandson, three months old, who gets caught in this crossfire. Austin, Eli, Sam, their moms, their dads. Folks, evil is real. And evil comes to expression in particular people, in particular places, with horrific consequences and effects for people. It's sobering, isn't it? Evil is real. Herod, at this particular moment, in this particular time, is the embodiment of evil. I have to press this for just a second. Our culture is not a culture that wants to call people evil. This is a culture that does not want to face the horrific reality of sin deeply woven into the fabric of the human heart. I said this to the folks at the refuge on, on Friday morning, the women who gather there for a study. They've had to, you know, you only have to put up with me for about 30 or 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. They have to put up with me for an hour and a half every Friday morning. And I suggested that to them, and I've suggested this here before, so forgive me, but I've suggested that I really do think The point of departure for understanding much of the difficulty that exists in the life of the church, not out there, but in the church, and then certainly out there, is our failure to take seriously the reality of sin and the reality of evil. Jeremiah 17.9, Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? We live in a world, we live in a culture, and I fear we live in a church culture which does not want to face the sobering and harsh and very serious reality of sin in the heart and the presence of evil in the world and how these two things somehow get woven together to an end like the end we read about in Matthew chapter 2. That an evil man consumed by his own evil, consumed by his own sin, imprisoned by his own sin, would order the execution of little boys, the commentators will tell you, somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to 50 little boys, two years old and younger. 
And we take that reality too, too lightly. We pass it off. We excuse it. We say, oh, it's not, it's not really Herod. It's his, it's his father. It's his mother. It's his family of origin. It's his, it's, it's his circumstances. It's, it's being poor. It's being uneducated. It's, look, folks, I'm not stupid. I understand that there are environmental and circumstantial things that can contribute to, exacerbate, put on steroids, intensify things. But you cut it all away, my friends. And we are still confronted with this fundamental presence and reality. And that is the reality of evil. And that is the reality of sin and corruption in the human heart. When we get to this table later, folks, this table, I trust, will be for you a profound, profound, wonderful, beautiful reminder to you of the fact that God has done something, both about evil and about sin. But you must understand this. Think about this. You measure the seriousness of a problem by what it costs to solve it. You measure the seriousness of a problem by what it costs to solve that problem. And this table, folks, reminds me and reminds you that the problem is so massively large and deep and broad that it required the incarnation of the eternal God to lead a life of perfection, die a death as a substitute, be buried in a real tomb to gain a real victory over death that he might, having been resurrected, ascend to his father's right hand, not to take up some cute little chair properly positioned at his dad's right side, but taking the father's throne and from that throne ruling and reigning with the promise that one day things will be the way they're supposed to be. Amen. But again, amen. You, you, you measure the seriousness of a problem by what it takes to solve that problem. And this problem is massive and deep. And we understand what happened in Matthew chapter 2 to be not an instance in which a slightly lunatic king goes off and kills a bunch of little boys. We see this as a bit of a window into this conflict which rages and which is restrained by God's grace so that the whole world is not consumed in a conflagration of self-absorption through the agency of people like Herod. If you want to see a cosmic portrayal of what is happening in Matthew chapter 2, 
Read Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6, which describes the serpent standing ready for the woman to give birth to the son which she will bear in order that the serpent might consume the child. But the child is preserved and kept and taken up to the throne where he is now and where he reigns. You can read about it as it happens in history in Matthew chapter 2. You can read about it as it is represented cosmologically as it is represented in Revelation chapter 12. But is it always going to be this way? No. No, it isn't. It isn't always going to be this way. This eternal conflict, this eternal warfare waged in the heavenly realm, interwoven into the physical and material world in which we find ourselves, this conflict will not always rage. Genesis 3.15, God not only said to the serpent, there will be enmity and hostility between your seed and her seed, but your head will be crushed. Your head will be crushed. What is God doing there? He is putting the serpent on notice. He is putting the devil on notice. He is putting the great accuser on notice. Your time will come. Your time will come. And there is a striking reminder of this actually in this passage. Last week I read the narrative through the phrase, and then Herod died. And we read it again this morning. Herod died. He began to reign in 37 BC. He died in 4 BC, March of 4 BC in Jericho, in one of his palaces, 4 B.C. Let's sequence things a bit, folks, and I've got to run through a quick sequence for you. Referring you to two weeks ago, when we talked about the Magi, actually last week, and we talked about the Magi and the timing of various things and how that the Magi likely saw some, some convergence of stars, and heavenly bodies, and then they likely saw an angel, an angel that provoked and prompted them to move in the direction of the West, following this angelic being. Angels are all over this narrative, leading them. They go first to Jerusalem. They then go to Bethlehem. But I want you to think about the sequence here, folks. It's in 6, maybe 5 BC that the Magi sort of get the word that it's time to go. It takes months for them to prepare, months for them to get Jerusalem, a few days for them to get down to to Bethlehem. They hear the word. They see the word. They go to this place. They are warned in a dream to return. And immediately, Herod, knowing that he's been deceived issues the edict for the slaughter of the children. And folks, the timetable is this. It is most certainly within a matter of weeks 
after the slaughter of the innocents that Herod dies. A matter of weeks. Do you know why I had us read Psalm 2? Oh, how Herod should have read Psalm 2. Not lightly, not cavalierly, not with venom or viciousness or anything else. I will tell you if I had the opportunity to preach before the United States Congress, including the Senate and the Chief Justices and the President of the United States, if I had the opportunity to preach at the General Assembly of the United Nations, this would be my text. Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? The God of heaven laughs. He mocks them to scorn. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings... Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. I'm telling you, friends, it was in a few weeks, within a few weeks, that Herod grew sick and died. Every once in a while, my friends, just as every once in a while, we are reminded of the incredible evil that evil is. Every once in a while, we are reminded by a sovereign God as he brings down evil that the day is coming when evil will no longer prevail and things will be as they are supposed to be. And so here's the third thing in the midst of it. In the midst of it, God provides. God provides. God cares. God is in the midst of this with his people. Look at the Magi. God directs them home by a safe path. God directs them home by another way. Look at Jesus and Mary and Joseph exposed to this present eruption and explosion of evil, God, God provides. God directs, God leads, God preserves, God cares, God sends Joseph and Mary and Jesus into Egypt and then summons them. And again warns them, the text says, 
the text says, that they were warned subsequently. Why? Because Herod's son was on the throne. If it wasn't safe then, it's probably not safe now. God warns them. God provides. God directs. He leads them to Nazareth, to an obscure place. Kings do not go to Paducah, Kentucky. He leads his beloved incarnate son to a place of security and safety. In the midst of it, in the midst of this conflict, God provides. How many stories could we tell of ways in which God evidences himself across the pages of history in working out his perfect and delightful, preserving, keeping, saving, sustaining purposes for the good of his people. So folks, as we find ourselves in the midst of this, this is what you may be assured of. This is what you may be assured of. You may take the text of Matthew chapter 2 and apply it to your life. You may know that as God led the Magi by another way and brought them safely home, he will do that for you. And as with Jesus, that path may lead you through a cross, through some difficulty and heartache and suffering, but that path is the path in the Lord's hand. And he will bring you safely home. Let's pray together and let's prepare to come to this Lord's table. Oh God, this is sober and sobering. Help us to be thoughtful, careful, serious, but help us to be hopeful as well. You have dealt with the big problem facing each of us. In fact, O Lord, in the cross and resurrection of Jesus and by the beginnings of his reign, you have begun to deal with this problem cosmos-wide and you will finish what you've started. And we praise you for that. As we come to this, your table, encourage our hearts, refresh our souls, send us out into this world to represent you well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together?